WOWDLP 94.3 Tacoma Park. Dear listeners, you are tuned into WOWD 94.3 FM. I am your host, Jack Gordon, and this is Interfaith-ish. Every other Wednesday, one hour at a time, right here on Tacoma Radio, we bring you bold conversations about what we believe, why we believe, and how we navigate the common ground and differences between our traditions. This is episode three of Interfaith-ish. Oh, we are getting into a groove now, people. And it's a great pleasure to have you all aboard for our exploration of interreligious, intercultural, intergalactic interlocution. So without further delay, let's roll up our sleeves and get into some interfaith-ish. Dear listeners, I have a story for you. It begins about 25 years ago when as a young boy I would travel with my family from New Jersey to visit my grandma and cousins who lived right here in Montgomery County. Often we'd leave at night to avoid traffic and my sisters and I would inevitably fall asleep on the long ride down 95. As we merged onto the Beltway just minutes from our destination, my parents would whisper to my sisters and me in the back seat of our minivan, time to wake up, we're almost there. And slowly, I'd open my eyes, and then, in the still groggy state, I'd see it rising above the trees di- directly in front of us, like the Magic Kingdom at the beginning of Disney movies, this beautiful white castle standing radiant against the dark night sky, adorned with a golden trumpeter who no doubt had scrambled to the top of the tower just to hail our arrival. What was this magical, mysterious place? If you've lived in D.C. for more than about five minutes and own a car, you probably know that the castle that I'm referring to is, in fact, the Mormon Temple. Who knows, maybe if you are in your car right now between Connecticut and Georgia Avenue exits, you're looking at it. Maybe you've driven that stretch of 495 every day for years on your commute and, like I did, stared at it over and over at those white towers but never made it closer than the highway. Perhaps it's always held a place of curious wonder in your mind. Another, albeit more subtle, Beltway landmark that you may be familiar with, that that was definitely a point of fascination for me when I moved to D.C. as an adult, is a big sign on the northbound side of Georgia Avenue that advertises the Meditation Museum. Again, I pass the sign nearly every day, and it always made me think, what is a meditation museum? How does that even work? Who runs that place? So if you've always wanted to know what was up with these sites and what the stories were behind them, then you're in luck. Today on Interfaith-ish, we have an opportunity to learn from two terrific guests. In the studio, I'm happy to have with me Gretchen Ryden member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Thanks for being here, Gretchen. 
Gretchen organizes community service projects and interfaith activities within her religious community and sits on the board of the Interfaith Conference of Metropolitan Washington. Professionally, Gretchen works for the Capital Area Immigrants' Rights Coalition, an organization that provides legal services to adults and children in, the Im in immigration detention. And in her copious free time, Gretchen has been finishing her master's degree in clinical social work at Howard University. Welcome, Gretchen. Thank you. And also joining us is Megan Mulvena. Hooray, it's Megan. Happy to have you here in spite of uh, having some soreness of, of throat and a, and a, a weak voice from, a, from an active weekend. Thank you for being here, Megan. Thank you. Megan is a member of the Brahma Kumaras organization who volunteers at both the local meditation museum in Silver Spring, Maryland, which I mentioned earlier, and also the Tyson's Corner location, as well as the Peace Village Retreat Center in upstate New York. For three years, Megan served as director of the Unity Walk, an annual interfaith solidarity event that came about in response to 9-11. And in her professional career for over 20 years, Megan has worked in the field of behavior analysis and currently provides consultation to charter schools in Washington, D.C. So I'm gl so glad to have you both with me on Interfaith-ish. Thanks for being here this morning. Glad to be here. Awesome. So Gretchen, let's start with you. Um, why don't you explain for our listeners uh, who don't know, what does the name The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints even mean? What exactly is a Latter-day Saint? And for that matter, what is a Mormon? Because that's something that we also are here describing the community. Yeah, we go by several names uh, for several reasons, I think. Just the history, you know, of, of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We believe that we are the restored gospel of the church that Jesus had when he was on the earth. And that's why we call ourselves the Church of Jesus Christ. And then the Latter-day Saint part is we are in the latter days. So the church was, we believe, restored um, in the 1800s. Uh, by the prophet Joseph Smith, and it was one of the first uh, religions established here in the United States. But we actually have a very global presence, and there are more members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints outside of the United States than there are inside. Hmm. Um, so um, you, you mentioned that, I mean, obviously right there in the name, Church of Jesus Christ, right up front, uh, I've... I, I imagine that in some circles, people may not consider LDS, as it's, as it's shorthand known, or Mormon as like a proper Christian denomination, right? Is that is that something that, that some people get, have that response to, be, particularly because of the role of Joseph Smith as a, as a, um, as also a recognized prophet in the community? Right. I, I mean, I don't know if, I've heard some people push back on, on that, but... I think that's one of the reasons we have Jesus Christ in our name is to declare that we are Christians mm -hmm. and we believe in the Trinity. Um, that's a big part of the faith and that's a foundational aspect of, of what we believe. Mm -hmm. So tell us some of the things that make um, LDS unique in as a Christian denomination. You mentioned the history of, of being here in the in the United States. So tell us a little bit about about where that how that uh how the community evolved and and um how it set itself apart perhaps from what we might consider to be like a mainline protestant denomination well a cornerstone of the faith is in addition to beholding to the bible 
and its its teachings we also have another book that is a it's called the book of mormon that's where i think we get our mormon mm -hmm. name kind of derived from and it's the story of christ on the earth here in the americas and there are beautiful teachings that explains more about the atonement of jesus christ and has other stories there again it's another another book just like the bible um, but we you know worship both or not worship sorry we acknowledge both as instrumental teaching tools mm -hmm. that to provide principles of our of our faith great great and so for those of us who live in the uh, dc area and familiar with the the temple as such a, a a big landmark here in the area tell us how how does the temple fit in what is what is the um uh the the special place that that temples have in in the mormon community I love that you bring that up because I still get a little chills when I'm on 495 and I <laughs> pass that castle in the sky because it comes out of the blue. Uh -huh. And at night, especially, it's gorgeous because it just illuminates the way it, it sits on top of that hill. And, you know, we design our temples intentionally that way because they are sacred spaces and they are holy spaces. Generally, they're only open to members um, who sort of agree to live a certain way at least inside the temple. There's always a visitor center next door. But what's special is before a temple is formally what we call dedicated, there's an open house to the community where we invite everybody to come inside, look around, learn about the gospel. So I think I want to make it clear that it's not secret in any way, but it is a very sacred and special place. And we do special ordinances there. By that, I mean our marriage ceremonies take, take place there. We also do a lot of work acknowledging our ancestors and the dead, and so there's special ordinances that take place there. Mormons are known for being family history gurus, mm -hmm. and that's because mm -hmm. we believe, you know, sort of the restoration of Elijah, that we have a responsibility to those who went before us, and, and they can help influence our work. And that's where, with a lot of... Um, Asian-influenced religions, we have a lot in common, hmm. that we really acknowledge the importance of, of our forefathers. Um, and there's restored covenants that are um, important to us that we do in those temples. Recently announced, we've got some new temples that are going to be built worldwide. Uh, I think there's going to be one in Argentina. It'll be their third. Oh, wow. We've got the first temple that's going to be built in India. Mm. Um, Nicaragua is going to have a temple. The Philippines is going to have its fifth temple, um, and we just announced a temple in Russia. Well. Not sure where that's going to be yet. Mm -hmm. But as I mentioned, you know, the, the presence of the members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is truly growing globally. Right. And the temple here, we restore our temples periodically. The temple that's here was built in the 1970s, and it was a temple that covered huge parts of this region because there were only a handful of temples in the United States at the time, especially mm. on the East Coast. In fact, when I was a kid, uh, I, I grew up in Chicago and there was no Chicago temple yet. So this was the temple that my parents would go to once a year kind of to, to um, do perform certain ordinances. And my favorite story mm. is of me as a little baby. And I come from a family of five kids. I'm the fourth. And so they wanted to make their annual trek to the temple at least. And so they took me in the car and they left the other kids at home with my grandparents. <laughs> and you know they didn't have a whole lot of money, of course. And so they slept in the car 
um, because they, you know, drove the 12 hours from Chicago and then they, they couldn't fit all the baby stuff in the car. So they put the baby seat outside the car and then slept with me as a baby in, inside the car. I thought and you so, were going to say they, they put you outside they put the me car. Outside, no. <laughs> um, but I, I, because of that story, I've always felt very connected to the temple that's here in, in DC. So it has a special place in my heart. And while it's closed because it's being renovated, I think a lot of structural issues, just because, again, it was built in the 1970s. It's going to be reopened again in two years, and it's going to be marvelous because it's going to be open to the community for uh, for quite a while so people can come through and check it out. And that mystery of that castle in the sky, <laughs> um, you know, won't won't be as such. Right. And people can really check it out and, and learn more. And it's just a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful building. Awesome. And I've, I've visited the, the visitor center, um, and, and it's been really a, a, a nice place to visit and learn more about the community um, and to, to have some of those questions answered about what is this and, and why is it why is it here and so mm. forth. So um, Megan, I want to bring you into the conversation because uh, I would guess that uh, as, as little as people might know about the LDS and the Mormon community, they probably know even less about the community that you're <laughs> affiliated with, which is Brahma Kumaris. Um, so tell us a little bit about, uh, about Brahma Kumaris and what's the origin of, of that community? Sure. So the Brahma Kumaris was founded um, in India, so I'm very interested to talk about the temple coming up um, in India. And it was back in the 30s, um, and it was uh, a gentleman named, in, in our tradition now, called Brahma Baba. Um, but that time, he was under a different name, Dada Lake Raj, and he was a jeweler, a businessman. And he started to um, have very profound experiences in silence. Um, and this was after many years of being a seeker and studying scriptures in the Hindu tradition. And he had enough experiences that really sort of redirected his path, um, that there really was this focus on one um, in terms of a God uh, supreme for all souls, and that if he could just keep his focus on that and change some aspects of his lifestyle, that he was actually finding more of his inner peace, mm. and he was restoring to what he felt were really more of the original qualities that all souls have and that our journeys sort of take us away from who we are. Mm -hmm. um, so that was really the start of it. It shifted his story so profoundly that he really um, dedicated his life to it, and more people started following him and saying, you know, well, what is that change in you? Um, and then a community formed, and um, it's grown since then. So it's over 80 years now. Would it be accurate to say that... Um, Brahma Kumaris is is a denomination of Hinduism then, or is it really something that's set apart? No, it is unique. It's it's considered what they call a worldwide spiritual organization. So okay. it's considered a path of spirituality, um, not necessarily religion. Um, but it's it was a big shift for him and really for the whole culture at the time to move away from sort of the the worshiping of of elements of different deities and to realize actually our own worth and you know our own again original qualities as souls so it really was quite a shift away from um there's a, a lot of links back to hinduism because of his um his study and because of the land where it was all formed um but it really is its own path in terms of how do we remember who we are awesome so. and and if i understand correctly you didn't grow up in in that particular tradition I so so tell us a little bit about your your path to to join brahma yeah. Um, well, I spent about 15 years in Catholic education, and something actually you might not know is that my mother was actually a Catholic nun for oh, wow. 12 and a half years before We're gonna she... We're going to have to have her on the show. That's a whole <laughs> other story. 
<laughs> before she left the community and got married and started a family. So I always say I was raised very Catholic, if that's possible. Um, and yeah, um, had a really very positive upbringing in that tradition um, and really just accepted it. Um, when I moved into my 20s, I, I picked up Buddhist meditation, um, and that was more for sort of a, um, a mental saving grace on my part. Um, so I still believed, had full faith in, in God and actually even in the tradition itself, but I needed um, a practice that was more connected to my daily life, mm -hmm. which is how meditation came into it. Um, and I did that tradition for about 10 years, um, until I came to D.C. and knew of the Brahma Kumaris through the retreat center, um, which I had connected with earlier. And once I started to visit them and hear more in terms of their meditation practice, which is called Raja Yoga Meditation, it was much more connected to um, really the everyday experiences. So um, there's a, a saying in Buddhism called off the cushion syndrome, hmm. which means that while you're on the cushion, you can feel completely blissful and in your peace and happiness. And then when you get off the cushion, not so much. Right. So I used to say, you wouldn't have known it by the way I drove to work that I had meditated that morning, <laughs> you know? So um, coming to the Brahma Kumaris was more of a blend, I think, of both my belief and practice. So it really brought in a meditation practice that, for example, it's an open-eyed practice. So it's more about how can we use our connection to source, um, not only while we're sitting, but also while we're walking, moving around. Awesome. Great. If you're just joining us, this is Interfaith-ish on WOWD 94.3 FM. We're talking with Gretchen Ryden and Megan Mulvena, two professionals in the fields of human behavior. Gretchen is a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and Megan is a member of Brahma Kumaris. So I'm curious how each of you, for each of you, your religious practice or your spiritual practice has influenced the decisions you've made about the professional fields that you've gone into. Uh, Gretchen, you're studying social work, and for as long as I've known you, has also really made volunteering, whether as a youth men mentor or with, um, in a women's shelter, a real centerpiece of how you commit your time. So tell us about that. What is the connection for you between your, your faith tradition and um, those sort of professional um, choices that you've made to go into social work and so forth? Well, it's twofold. First, as fundamental to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we believe in a pre-existence. In that pre-existence, we believe that the spirits and souls of everybody were very live, live, lively and active. I think because of that, that acknowledgement that everybody has is is a child of God, like that's a fundamental principle, that that informs my professional life and my personal values, that everybody is a special, unique soul. So because of that, I love to be in the shelters and serving. Um, and and I think this the second part of that is, you know, charity is the pure love of Christ. Mm. And charity is not, I mean, we think of charity sometimes as giving money or, or something or giving things, um, but it's so much more than that. It is the pure love. It's an attitude. And I like to be able to organize around that and let others um, feel the connected, it's the connection to one another, I think, through, through service. And community service is just a lot of fun. Interfaith work fits into that as well mm -hmm. um, because you're really connecting one-on-one -on -one with the individuals and acknowledging that, hey, you are a child of God. And here we share the same space. No matter what our economic disparity might be, uh, we are both here together. We both made a decision to come to this earth, uh, which is another fundamental um, part of our religion, um, and we respect that. 
Um, so I think that's informed a lot of the social work side. Um, and now that I'm finally, finally finishing my program, I'm at Howard University, which is fantastic. And we talk a lot about um, the black perspective. And you know that includes social justice issues and aff affirmation and vivification of especially groups that have been historically oppressed. And how do we acknowledge that? How do we create a space that's reverent um, for what folks have gone through that have informed who they are today and some of the, the it's a great program. Mm -hmm. Highly recommend it. Mm -hmm. awesome. I, awesome. I got to put my plug in there for Howard. Um, mm -hmm. Megan, how about, how about with you? What, um, what is it about um, mm -hmm. uh, being involved with uh, Brahma Kumaris that, that has influenced the direction in your yeah. professional life? I think one of the things that Gretchen said that um, is paramount in our tradition as well is that every soul is a child of God. So I love that. And I think that that's, um, it's what brought me into special education was sort of my own personal journey. But I think what has changed the way I'm doing my work, particularly in the past six years that I've been with the Brahma Kumaris, um, has been more of what we refer to as really just kind of this, we call it soul awareness. Um, and in one of our exhibits at the Meditation Museum, there's a beautiful exhibit called Soul and Body Awareness. And it focuses on if we're coming from the soul awareness, we're coming from this remembrance that we are all souls on our journey um, and that if we remember what's beautiful and what's actually authentic in all of us that um, we will all be in a better place and we'll all be helping each other um, get to a better place so I think in in bringing in a lot more of that um, soul consciousness into my professional work I've been able to do a lot more in the past few years um, in terms of the the individuals that I've been brought to work with in terms of coaching um, individuals in the school systems that are responsible for handling students that, that have pretty severe behavior challenges. But regardless of how they're acting, um, that's not who they are at their core. Mm -hmm. And I think recognizing and looking at them through that lens is what helps us to really improve all of our behaviors, mm -hmm. you know, into into practices that are really more serving for ourselves and others, which is where that quality of life, I think, that we're all striving for comes from. And is meditation something that you are counseling people to actively train themselves with as well in the work yeah, that you do? Yeah, not so much in my professional work. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm always curious myself of where that intersection is. Um, but most of my work, I think, professionally, I, I do, you know, I'm I'm sort of um, responsible for, for following up the principles of behavior psychology. And that's more sort of where I come from in terms of a, an informational place, but in terms of a personal place of how I'm looking at the situation. Um, and certainly in some situations, depending on the educators or, or the individuals, it will come up in conversation. Um, and we certainly you know can share with people where the meditation museums are. I think it can be a resource for people. Um, but there's also sort of the professional aspect of the amount of time as a consultant, I sort of get a small amount of time to kind sure. of get to the root of the issues. And I've found that the biggest impact comes from when I'm coming from that soul consciousness and, and guiding the situations based on that. Beautiful. So. Beautiful. This is Interfaith-ish on WOWD 94.3 FM. We're talking today with Gretchen Ryden of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and Megan Mulvena with Brahma Kumaris. Megan, the role of women is particularly unique in Brahma Kumaris compared to most traditional religious structures uh, that we might think of. So what do you, tell us a little bit about, about the role of women there in leadership and what do you feel the impact is of 
women being some of the primary leaders in the community? Mm. So it goes back to really the the founder and when um, the community was really being organized and um, perhaps it was a moment of insight, but um, the the decision that he came to was that um, women were going to be the future of the world. And he just felt that very strongly and that um, to really bring about the, again, the self-worth and, and the... Um, the the love and the the care that that comes um, from women and through women and again I think it's always important to look at like the culture of that time we're talking during the split of India and Pakistan back in the 30s so there clearly were enough opportunities in front of them in that culture to to inspire that but I also think that um, it really has shown a lot especially in where we are today um, and what's happening with women that there is this recognition that we do have a lot of untapped energy um, in that in that group of people and how can we um, through again recognizing our own self-worth and bringing out the the qualities that really could bring more of a model to the world. Um, so early on, he put me eight women in charge of the organization, and, and that's been the model. So there certainly are plenty of men that are a part of the organization, but um, because of that finding and you know, in the foundation of it that women really are in a lot of leadership roles, and many of the, we call them instruments, so um, we don't refer to them as teachers, mm -hmm. um, and instruments is meant to sort of help um, cut that ego that might come with teacher versus I know more than you, but as instruments of God that are here to really just help each other um, really show up to more of who they are. And many of the instruments um, are predominantly women. Mm -hmm. So, so, so we're just to, just to clarify sort of the nuance here in terms mm -hmm. of the terms that you're, you're using mm -hmm. the, so instruments are on a more local or regional level. And then you have a council of eight women, which is the, the leadership of the worldwide organization. Mm -hmm. Is that right? So it was initially the eight. Um, some have moved on. The head of the organization is Daddy Janky, who's 102 years old. Wow. Um, and she resides between India and our retreat center in London. Mm. Um, so the leadership has changed a bit, just given time. But yes, from we have the our headquarters is in Northwest um, India and Rajasthan um, and Mount Abu, and then we have regional coordinators and then national coordinators and then local coordinators. So mm. there's instruments at all levels, um, and again, predominantly many women that are in that, those positions. So. Great. Uh, Gretchen, same topic for, for you. When it comes to the role of women in the LDS community um, in both church and family life, it seems like this has been a topic that's been discussed a lot within the community from, from what I've observed in, in um, media uh, related to the Mormon community as well as just talking with, with uh, LDS friends. So um, can you Tell us a little bit. Tell us a little bit about that. What? Is, where is traditionally the role of women been, and and how has the church defined gender roles or advised on gender roles, and where do you see it going? Well, like the like the Catholic hierarchy, it has a similar hierarchy in that it originates with a a, pro, a president, a prophet, who then has counselors, and then. Just like Jesus Christ had on the earth, he had apostles, so we have 12 apostles. Right now, those are all men, and so it's organized, and then they have responsibilities within, like, geographically, and we organize locally that way as well, mm -hmm. so that there is a bishop who's in charge of a congregation. He'll have two counselors who are men, but there are 
organizations that are directed by women within those those um, I don't even know what you'd call them those organizations I guess mm -hmm. uh, and that would be what's called the Relief Society is mm -hmm. one and those are in charge of all the women and they lead programs they lead the content and structure of the, in the instruction that women get you know our church meetings are three hours long each Sunday <laughs> and we have our you know a regular what we call a sacrament meeting followed by a Sunday school and then we kind of split off by genders mm. and so the women will meet together and that is what's called the Relief Society mm -hmm. and and then the men will meet together as well and how does that how does that um, work for for you all from from your perspective does it is it something that especially I'm thinking you know there's ways in which communities interact internally and then we go out into the world and and are you know influenced or or have have certain pressures by wherever the world is at at that particular time you know um, so I'm I'm curious what the conversation is like within LDS communities right now around that given that there is a lot of conversation about um, women's um, I don't want to say empowerment because I feel like <laughs> because I feel like all the LDS women that I've ever met have, have been very strong and <laughs> self-assured and so forth um, but but certainly in terms of in terms of um, breaking with the tradition of of normal gender roles I imagine that there might be a good amount of pressure depending on the communities that you are more largely a part of is that true to some extent, I think there are pockets of, you know, women who want to see more and men who want to see more uh, equality within the structure of the church. But, you know, equality has funky definitions. Mm -hmm. And, for example, you know, priesthood authority, which, again, that speaks to that, that bishop, that those counselors, those what we call keys that they hold, that who they're able to give blessings and they bless our sacrament um, and they have some other responsibilities. Those are historically held by men. Um, and I think there is some folks within the community and outside who don't like that. Mm. And uh, so there is conversations about how do we, can we change that? You know, I'm a human rights person. I work in, well, in immigrant rights, but I was working for Human Rights First, a nonprofit organization here in D.C. for the past four years. So it's an issue that's really close, and I want to, close to my heart, and I want to push back a little bit on some of the negative when people kind of say that, you know, you're not equal in your faith. We serve, we lead organizations. We just had a new presidency called to um, lead the young women, so kind of our youth ministry. And uh, we have a presence. And I mentioned the, really, the importance of the Relief Societies. Their job is to serve families. Their job is to be in the community, bringing food, organizing clothing drives, making sure the needs of each congregation and the families and the individuals in those congregations are met. That's the pri one of their primary responsibilities. Mm -hmm. And they work with the bishop and everyone else in those leadership roles to make that happen. And so way they, way the world might, might not acknowledge them as um, leading in like that capacity, functionally, they are leaders. We are leaders. I am a leader in my right. faith community, even though I and I am not even though, and I am a woman, mm -hmm. I am both. Right. Uh, I think that's important to note. And in the temple, women do have certain priesthood 
powers. And, you know, we don't talk about that a lot just because I had mentioned that that's a very sacred space. But we share in that with, with men. And it's not men don't own that priesthood power. That is God's power. Mm. It's, they just have permission to use it. Um, right. And so I think that's worth noting. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, the idea of being service-oriented in your leadership is is an an important quality for our, our the broader community to recognize and certainly one of the things that that I see when I look at the LDS community is that they are such a strong example of what it means to really go out into the community and and give um, really wholly of themselves you know really show up for community service um, with energy and enthusiasm and authenticity um, so that's that's always been a you know a, a very strong and favorable impression that I've that I've had of, of Mormons individually and as the LDS community collectively. Um, I'm wondering, Megan, um, to go back to you about um, thinking of this idea of uh, service and, and a role in the, in the broader community. I mentioned at the beginning of the show um, the Meditation Museum, which people might be familiar with, with seeing if they drive through the area, um, going up to Wheaton. What what is the meditation museum? What role does it have in the community? What do you what what are you, are your hopes or the hopes of the Brahma Kumaris community um, mm -hmm. in terms of how how it can be a, a a service to the broader community as well? Yeah, absolutely. So um, again, kind of going back to the the founding of the organization, um, once the community was formed and they were really clear in terms of what what their purpose was and what their own clarity was and how they could share that with others, um, the women started to leave and they left India and um, first went to the UK and, and then to the US and so the expansion sort of took place. Um, so we now have about, I think it's about 8,500 centers or branches worldwide um, and that's in 120 countries. And so um, locally, we have the meditation museums, and um, we've been in the Silver Spring area, I think, close to about eight years. Um, <clears throat> Sister Jenna, who's the director of the meditation museum, um, came here about 20 years ago, and there have been a number of different places. Um, you know, our centers can look like houses that are more residential but always have a meditation space or more commercial, which is where we are now. Um, so really, the purpose of all of our spaces, um, which is, I think, the first level of service is for people to be able to step inside and really remember who they are. Um, and because of the intentionality of the way the spaces are held and kept um, and our own meditation practice while we're in there, um, you really can feel the difference when you step inside. Um, and I usually reference when I first stepped inside, it was because there was a sign on the door that said, peace is inside. And I thought, okay, let's see. Um, and then I went in and I realized what it really meant. And I was like, now that was tricky. <laughs> Um, but what did it really mean? Because it really is. It's in you. It's got nothing to do with outside. <laughs> but we need that space to step into. And I think um, have the exhibits in the Meditation Museum are meant to really wake up that spiritual journey that we're all on. Mm -hmm. And it depends on where we are <clears throat> as to how we'll receive what's there and what it will wake up in us and if we'll come back or not. But they really are meant to be um, just those oasis really amidst the, the busyness of life. Beautiful, beautiful. This is Interfaith-ish, our bi-weekly show where we discuss the common ground and differences between our traditions. I'm your host, Jack Gordon, and I'm joined today by Gretchen Ryden of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and Megan Mulvena of Brahma Kumaris. 
We've already discussed some of the background of each of our guests in our first half hour. And now for the last part of our show, we're going to turn the mics over to our guests to give them the floor to ask them anything that they've always wanted to know about each other's traditions and beliefs. You know, one of the principles that guides us in this show is that the essential purpose of dialogue is to learn and to be open to change in oneself through a process of learning about oneself. And we are all in this process of learning together, even if we've worked shoulder to shoulder with interfaith collaborators for years. We know that there's always things that we still want to know that we maybe have never asked about their tradition or practice, things that we've not thought to ask, never known to ask, or just flat out misunderstood. So we want this to be a space to ask questions and have it be a respectful place of learning, but also be bold and go forward with open hearts. So with that, I'll turn it over to my two guests, Gretchen and Megan. Excellent. Thank you, Jack. Megan, yes, I do have a question for you kind of about meditation. You know, in social work and in my clinical work, when I'm working with clients, meditation and mindfulness training is an intervention like that is something it's complementary to other traditional forms of therapy and it's evidence-based and that it proves mm -hmm. it's proven that it works really well mm -hmm. that grounded with that uh, an individual's spirituality can be really influential in their their treatment plan and their mm -hmm. level of healing so can mm -hmm. you talk a little bit about what that looks like mm -hmm. kind of what your day looks like yeah. how you integrate that meditative piece sure well, I think it's a great question from a practicality piece, and I think um, no matter what kind of work we're doing, um, even if we can't find, let's say, the, the time to sit for duration in meditation, there's something so critical about just a pause. Um, we have a free app called Pause for Peace, and um, I love just that phrase, pause for peace, because it's come up in so many conversations, particularly in the wake of tragedies, that if the souls that were in the, the positions that they were just even had that, that moment to just pause and check their thoughts and check where their actions were going, we could have had very different outcomes. So I think really helping people to, to pause and to realize that there is this inner and outer that our thoughts are actually at the root of our words and our actions. And if we're able to check where our thoughts are, we're actually able to change what we do next. Um, so I think it's just super critical for, for all people to be able to just get that tool alone. Um, so, you know, for us, it looks like a, a quite an early rise. Our first meditation is at 4 a.m. Mm -hmm. And um, we don't recommend that to everybody, but <laughs> once you're moved to, and if you're awake at that hour, I'm awake at that hour, regardless of how much I've slept. Um, and it's it's our it's our connection time. It's our time to really to to listen, and to be with God, and to be with our innermost thoughts, and set our intentions for the day, and see what might be pulling us or distracting us, or what do we want to do better. You know, um, and then from there we have a daily class that we listen to every day at 6 a.m., which I kind of refer to as our our daily pep talk, our spiritual pep talk that really gives us some very practical guidelines about how can you keep your thoughts and words and actions in a good place today. Um, and then we usually have our breakfast time and off to work unless we're one of the volunteers that's staying back at one of the centers and go through our day. We have what's called traffic control where we pause every hour on the hour. And again, that's just to be able to check where are we in our day, where are we in our thoughts, in our work. 
Um, and then we have our evening meditation at 7 p.m., which is meant to really put back down the day and to, um, again, maybe check how it went, um, you know, have this conversation with God about how our, our story is unfolding and, and certainly let go of what we don't need to take with us. Um, I think it's very important, especially as we're going into sleep, that we're not bringing stories, whether that we've heard from outside or that we've lived ourselves, um, that we no longer need and to recognize what we need to do let go of and then what we do need to hold on to and, and pick up tomorrow. So. So I would love, speaking of that, um, because I know you have a lot of stories, <laughs> and um, you, you mentioned in terms of your work and how it's sort of guided by that principle of, you know, every child is a child of God, and how your work in human rights and where you see your career going is kind of unfolding with all of that. Yeah, and as you were talking about stories, and I was actually just thinking of one of the clients I have. Uh, mm. As I mentioned, I'm working for the CARE Coalition, which is the Capital Area Immigrant Rights uh, Coalition. And so we work with clients right now who are in immigration detention. And, you know, the rates of post-traumatic stress disorder are huge. And, you know, with, with PTSD, those stories, though the things that they've been through, they re-experience them over and over again. And now I was just thinking, i got to add sort of meditation and mindfulness in a, as a as part of their their plan like their treatment plan um to address because you know when they one of the symptoms of ptsd of course is that you might have sleep issues because you are re you have nightmares or whatever of those stories and mm -hmm. so i wonder if there's a way to help them process those out through the day through like that mindfulness through that meditation that would allow them to disengage and, 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 and not have those things replaying in their head. I want to well, we, more on we'd that. love to welcome them to the meditation museum <laughs> yeah. and do a little sort of crash course and give them a tour and see if there are tools that they could integrate. Well, first we got to get them out of immigration detention. <laughs> That's one of the, you know, the gross yeah. challenges. And we've had a lot of, um, um, there's some recent cuts in funding to, to the program that mm -hmm. allows for intake services and legal services into the, uh, the legal orientation program is what it's called. That was just mm -hmm. cut. Um, mm -hmm. So we're working on fundraising and try to, you know, reestablish that program because it's so integral mm -hmm. to making sure that every child of God has a voice and mm -hmm. that they understand what their rights are in this country. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, freedom and I mean, even the history of, of I think one of the reasons the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is so supportive of refugees and to some extent of asylum seekers is because we have a history as of a church mm. as being persecuted, and we were refugees. That's why our, if you look at the, the, the pioneer track west, I think mm. it was so integral because they mm -hmm. kept being pushed out mm -hmm. of every place that they tried to settle mm -hmm. um, until they finally, of course, settled in, in Salt Lake City. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm interested when you were sharing earlier, and it seems like something that both traditions really have in common is this really global um, emphasis and global impact and global growth. Um, and just how that ties into when we talk about human rights, I mean, I think it's easy in America to focus sort of on how the world is coming here or how we are responding to the world. But to think that geographically how um, the stories of humanity are just constantly unfolding. And what struck me is to hear about the temple being built in India mm -hmm. and knowing that the Brahma Kumaris is rooted in India. What are some, do you have any knowledge of sort of how the tradition is spreading there? Or what, what do you think some of the, the present day issues in India, how is that impacting people? Um, to become or to, to practice um, with with the LDS community there? Well, we have thousands of missionaries abroad 
listeners, you've probably seen them on their bikes or they've knocked on your door uh, or you've been to New York and you've seen the, the musical, which is very satirical. Um, is it, are you saying that's a mission-led project? <laughs> no, no, <laughs> not. Uh, although I will say that, you know, uh, any press is good press. And I think uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints actually advertised in the program bill for the Book of Mormon because, you know, even again, very satirical. Uh, but there are, it also raised a lot of questions for people about mm -hmm. what is this religion and who are these mm -hmm. strange young men and, and now young women who serve. And, of course, with missionary service, it's young men who are 18, um, and then young women now who are um, 19 mm -hmm. go and serve for two years. Um, in India in particular, those missions, they were not proselytory missions, which means people did not knock on doors uh, to, to proselytize. They were actually service missions. And so mm -hmm. they started out doing mostly humanitarian work. Mm -hmm. And as a result, you know, as we've talked a lot of today, service and community activity, I think, does convert in a way mm -hmm. because we unite through these themes of, serving one another and just recognizing you're human mm -hmm. and we share this mm -hmm. and I just want to help you reach your full potential and that gets individuals start who start asking questions and now there's I think something like maybe 10,000 please don't quote me on this mm -hmm. uh, members in India and uh, so yeah we're really excited to have wow. a, a temple there and to be able to acknowledge those members who are uh, you know, working and believe in this in this faith and have a place to worship because yeah. it is hard globally to be able to we, temple worship should be as often as possible. Mm -hmm. It's not something you just do yearly. I think um, economically for some people it is because of the way the location is. That's why there's an emphasis on us building more temples mm -hmm. and our temples are now smaller, mm -hmm. um, which enables them to be in more locations. Mm -hmm. Wow. I'd love to see the two connect actually in India. Um, you know, have them visit the Brahmakumaris and have somebody from the Brahmakumaris visit the temple there. I'm just, I think we could arrange that. <laughs> we probably could. <laughs> awesome. Well, this is, you know, that first step of being able to connect communities. You know, part of the mission of this uh, program is to bring folks from different paths together. And so I'm really happy that we had this opportunity to have both of you in the studio together to, to share about each of your your paths, each of your traditions, each of your professional lives. Yeah. Um, I want to thank um, both of my guests, Gretchen Ryden and Megan Mulvena, uh, for coming here today. Thank you very much for being Thanks, here. Jack. Grace and yeah. us. Uh, dear listeners, that's a wrap on our third episode of Interfaith-ish. Uh, I want to again thank our guests, Gretchen Ryden and Megan Mulvena, for joining me. I also want to thank my fellow Interfaith-ishtronauts, my team behind the scenes, Miranda Hovmeyer and Sue Katz-Miller. And a shout out to Jeff Philosopher uh, for hooking us up with our theme music. And a big thanks to you, dear listeners, for spending your time with us. How are we doing? Did you learn something new? Uh, were you inspired by our, our Mormon meditation conversation? Uh, do you have any interfaith-ish that you wish to dish? You can write us an email at interfaithish at gmail.com. Let us know. That's interfaithish at gmail.com. I-N-T-E-R-F-A-I-T-H-I-S-H at gmail.com. We'll be back in two weeks on Wednesday, May 2nd at 9 a.m. with our next live episode. Until then, you can keep it locked to WOWD 94.3 FM for great music and programs seven days a week, streaming online at Tacoma Radio.
org. Go there for a full program schedule. Up next, we're going to have Bobby Hill with uh, his Borderlines program on the People's Voice of Choice, Tacoma Radio, WOWD 94.3 FM.